to ask you to take your Bibles again, turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verse 21. You know, I'm sure, what uh, satire is. And uh, some of you I know will have heard and enjoyed, been informed by and provoked by the Babylon Bee. So I dug up uh, an old article from 2017 that uh, fits with what we're going to talk about today. And I'll read two paragraphs from that article. The first is this. The first paragraph says, the opening paragraph says, uh, articles about Santa Claus. And it says, um, after a transformative moment reading R.C. Sproul's What is Reformed Theology for the first time earlier this week, legendary Christmas icon Santa Claus reportedly converted to a full-on five-point Calvinist and almost immediately moved every single person on the planet to the naughty list, sources confirmed Friday. How can I put anyone on the nice list when every human being is totally depraved from birth? St. Nick was overheard saying to Mrs. Claus, no matter what filthy rags of righteousness they bring before the Lord, they're condemned already based on their sin nature. Later on in the, in the article, it says that Claus reportedly further rep- repented of his merits-based system of giving out gifts and will now instead select people to receive presents-based on nothing good or bad within themselves, but solely on the basis of mercy. <laughs> that's, just, that's just fabulous. But of course, really, it's not funny at all, is it? Because the fact is that by nature we're all hell-bound sinners. And that's a tragedy of monumental proportion. Romans, 6, uh, Romans 3 and then Romans 6. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Uh, there's none righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. There's no fear of God in their eyes. All we like sheep have gone astray. And in John 3 we read that the wrath of God abides over them. Now the wrath of God is hanging over everybody's head like the sword of Damocles. And people are probably going to have a great time today, and there's lots of festivities. And for the probably majority of people in the world, the wrath of God hangs over them. I wanted to say, and I'm going to say, some sobering things later on. I thought to myself, is this going to be a drag for them? Well, it ought not to be, you know, because there are sobering things about our text 
sobering things about Christmas. And if we don't think about this, then we're missing the point. So, yeah, it's not really funny at all. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. Jesus' name means Jehovah saves, God saves, and and that's why Jesus came. It's to save us from our sins. And that's the best thing about Christmas. There's an awful lot about Christmas that we just love. And we love uh, traditions. We're not confusing tradition and Bible teaching, but there are traditions, there are things about Christmas that we just love, things we do, uh, things we do every year, things we do with people we love. That's fabulous. You know, we enjoy that. Nothing wrong with that. But Christmas really is just a massive and expensive waste of time without this reality that Jesus came to save us from our sins. And without this, the fact that Jesus came to save us from our sins, all our enjoyable and lovely Christmas traditions, they just mock us. And they mock our inability to deal with the fundamental issues of life and the fundamental problem of our existence, namely our sin. And so it's a glorious thing to think about these sobering things. And it puts everything in context. And it helps us then to celebrate and enjoy with understanding. And it's a marvelous thing beyond description to know that the Lord Jesus... His name is Jesus, because he comes to save us from our sins. And what I want to do is to explain and show what he saved us from. He's going to save us from our sin. We want to try and unpack that, and I want to explain what he saves us from. And the first thing I'll say to you about this is that he saves us from separation, He saves us from separation. You see, you know your Bibles, and you know that after the fall, we were banished. I don't know if you've ever been shut out from things, been banished from a place you want to be, kept out, keep your distance, do not enter. We're banished from the garden. And everywhere in the Old Testament, we're reminded, and it's emphasized, that we need to keep our distance from God. Sinners have no place in the presence of the living God. Sinners have no place in the presence of the holy judge. And hell, you see, is a place where God is not. That's where we ought to be. That's where we're destined to be unless Jesus comes to save us from our sins. And hell is a place where God is not, except for the manifestation of his wrath. He is there, but he's there in the manifesting of his wrath. It's there that his judgment is poured out. 
That's the outer darkness. That's how Jesus refers to it. It's the outer darkness, and that's as far away from the light as you can get. And that's where we would be had Jesus not come to save us from our sins. We're separated from God by nature. And that means that we don't know God. And it means that we can't come near God. It means that we shall never be with God. It means that we shall forever be in the place where God is not. And where the only manifestation of God is His wrath. And the only thing you will be judged, the only thing you will taste is His judgment. And that's, that's who we are by nature. We're those who are separated from God. And Jesus has come to save us from that. That's why this, this Christmas thing is so fabulous. Because He's come to save us from that. And in fact, in Ephesians 2, we read that He is Himself our peace. And He's come that He might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body. And through Him, we have access. You see, when you're a Christian, you're not banished anymore. You're not separated anymore. But in fact, you have access to God. And you can come into His presence. Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. You're not far off anymore. You're not in the far country anymore. You've been brought near, and you've been brought close, and you're so close that you're said to have fellowship with God. That's how John describes it in 1 John 1. You were separated, but now you enjoy Intimate fellowship with the triune God. You're so close now that you can call Him Abba Father. You're so close now that Jesus says that the Father loves you as much as He loves the Son. You're so close to God now as a Christian that you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. You are His temple. And you're so close to God that Father and Son have come and they've made their abode. They've made their home in you. It's because Jesus has saved you from separation from God. And then the Lord Jesus saves us from punishment. He saves us from punishment. He didn't come to help us to, oh, you know, find ourselves. He didn't come to to set at right dysfunctional people and dysfunctional families. Be very careful about the use of that word dysfunctional. Don't let it be a substitute for sin. He didn't come to make us less dysfunctional. He didn't come to help us to live our best life now, the way that heretic says. No, he came to save us from our sins. And he came to rescue us from punishment. You see, he saves you from the fires of hell. Matthew 5.22, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He saves you. The Lord Jesus has saved you from fiery hell. 
I, I've been in, a, in the burn unit. And I've seen people who've been burned beyond recognition. And I'm told that what they suffer is unimaginable. And Jesus takes that image of fire to describe what hell is like. And he came to save you from that. He came to rescue you from that. He came so that the fires will not scorch you. That's why he came. He came to save you from destruction. Matthew 7.13, the gate is wide that leads to destruction. But that destruction which loomed large in your life is not a destruction which leads to annihilation. No, yours would have been an eternal destruction, an everlasting destruction. Jesus came to save you from that kind of thing, from that reality, from that destiny. He's rescued you. He came to save you from, oh, from desolation, from desolation. You know, uh, Revelation 19, sorry, Revelation um, 18 describes the judgment that comes upon Babylon. It describes what, what that city was and what it was like and now what it is like after the judgment. And we read these very sobering words. And as I read this, remember that, that this was your destiny. This is what was going to happen to you. And Jesus came to save you from this. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and be found no more. And the, the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of a mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of a bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints." And of all who had been slain on the earth. And all of those delights of life are over. Desolation is the, the apt word to describe what their existence is like. And Jesus came to save us from, from desolation. All that's part, you see, of the punishment that God pours out upon sinners. He comes to save us from darkness. In Matthew 8, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. The fire of hell is an eerie fire because it seems to cast no light. And the outer darkness, is a, it's the darkest of darkness. Because it is as far away from the light of God as a man can be cast. And Jesus came to save you from that that punishment. He came to save you from torment. Matthew 8, 12 says that that place of outer darkness is a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you know, when the Lord Jesus says that, he says he, what it's going to be like there is that that will be a place where 
there is the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. It's almost as if it's a, a weeping that doesn't bear comparison. And all the weeping you've wept up until that point doesn't bear comparison with the weeping you weep on that day. This is the weeping. And this is the gnashing of teeth, the like of which this world has never seen. Jesus came to save you from that. From that torment. He came to save you from the fiery furnace. Unbelievers will be thrown, the scripture says, into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But they're not just going to be placed in the fiery furnace. They're not going to be put in the fiery furnace. They're not going to be consigned to the fiery furnace. The idea is they're going to be hurled. What a horrid and horrible picture. They'll be hurled into this. And the Lord Jesus came to save you from that. And he came to save you from everlasting punishment because all of this, all this punishment we've been describing, there is no end to it. And these, Jesus says, will go away to everlasting punishment. He came to save from that. And he came to save us from God because this is the punishment God inflicts. This is the wrath of the Almighty God. This is not some justice system. This is the personal wrath of the living God. And on that day, if you're not a Christian, on that day, God will be the enemy for you. And you'll be running away, trying to run away from God. So think about this. There's hell, there's destruction and desolation and darkness and torment and there's a furnace and there's wrath and there will be suffering forever and torment everlasting and bodies because you'll suffer in a resurrection body. There's suffering forever and bodies which will have infinite capacity to suffer. You would think that at some point you disappear because the suffering is so horrendous, but you'll be able to suffer forever. You say, well now why why tell us about this today of all days? I came here really pumped. (laughs) Well, it's because of this. Because that's why Jesus came, to save us from this. And that stirs your soul with unquenchable joy and thanksgiving. That we are okay, we are safe, because he came. He came to save us from this came to save us from punishment. And then he came to save us from wrath. Let's think about that for a moment and zero in on that for a moment. 
I was saying to you last night that you could, uh, you could destroy two hours of your life uh, by watching Christmas with the Cranks. Well, when I was preparing this message this week, I went to the television and, and I looked, I just looked at what was on TV, what Christmas movies were on TV at that particular moment. I wrote down the, the titles. I've not seen these. I want that. I want to be absolutely clear. I've not seen this stuff. I just want you to know. <laughs> but this was on TV. Christmas on Ice. Poinsettias for Christmas. Now there's a classic. A tiny home for Christmas. Can't imagine what that's about. My mind wandered for a little bit. Then I said, now you need to stop. And then there's a brush with Christmas. And again, (laughs) who knows what that's about. And I think the safest thing is to not watch that. The real significance of Christmas is both sobering and glorious. You put that nonsense to the side. And the reality is sobering and it is glorious. Because you see, the fact of the matter is that we are getting closer and closer and closer. And what's more, everybody out there, and you if you're not a Christian... Everybody's getting closer and closer to this moment. I'll read about it. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one uh, sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he is a name written that no one knows but he himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day the wrath of God will be poured out upon sinners. And such were some of us. Those of us who are Christians now, that's who we were. We were those who were headed irrevocably towards that moment when this glorious being described in Revelation 19 would tread the winepress of the wrath of God and the fury of the wrath of the Almighty God would be poured out upon us. And that wrath, you see, is omnipotent. It's the wrath of God Almighty and you cannot escape it and you cannot evade it and you cannot resist it and you cannot overcome it and you will not free yourself from it And they will call on the mountains to fall on them to save them from the wrath of the Lamb. And it will be to no avail. This is omnipotent wrath. It is wrath that is unmitigated. That is, it is pure. It is unadulterated. 
It is absolute. It is unmixed. It is undiluted. It is full and it is furious, this wrath of God. And there is not a shred of mercy in it. And there is not a hint of kindness in it. And in hell, everyone will be cut off irrevocably from every vestige of the goodness of God. This is pure, unmitigated wrath. And it is wrath that is, unth- that is eternal. And this is a thought that is it's unthinkable. It's a thought that if you think about it, you feel yourself absolutely shattered. It's a thought that if you dwell upon it, you can dwell no longer. And you have to avert your eyes. And you have to turn your mind away to think about everlasting punishment. And to think that there is no end to it. And this wrath will never lessen. It will never wane. It will never fade. And there is no hope for people in hell. Abandon all hope, wrote Dante. It's a place of unrelenting tears and unremitting sorrow. And as long as God exists, He will pour out wrath. And Jesus came to save us from that. And He comes to bear our sins. He came to bear the sins of many. And on the cross, so you know this, you know, you remember, those words echo in your mind. You'll never forget them. That Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you treasure those words. You glory in those words because that's your deliverance. That's your freedom. And that means you'll never be forsaken. And you'll never bear wrath because He's propitiation. Jesus came to save us from our sins. It meant that for Him. It meant that. It meant bearing wrath. He came to save us also from conflict. From conflict. If you read history, you know know that uh, the 20th century dawns with tremendous optimism. And uh, this was going to be the golden age. The 20th century was going to be the golden age. And of course then, when you read the history of the 20th century, then you know that we begin to kill each other with just wild abandon. And we kill one another in numbers that are just staggering. In greater numbers, numbers than in any previous century in history. And, you know, one of the most tragic results of the fall, I mean, the most tragic is that you're under wrath. You face the judgment of God. But, but one of the most tragic consequences of the fall is, is conflict. I mean, interpersonal Conflict, human conflict, fighting, and murder, and violence. 
And it's terrible. And we glamorize it and we, oh, we play games about it and we make movies about it and it seems as if, you know, it's okay, but it's horrific. And violence and human conflict is a terrible thing. It's so bizarre, isn't it, to, to read about and think about that, that Christmas day in World War I where the men came out of the trenches and they came into no man's land and they kicked a football around, a real football, the, the round one, not the other one, and, and, they, and they drank as much as they could and, and they enjoyed that Christmas day and then they went I mean, can you imagine this? They went back into the trenches and then they began to kill one another again. Like, what is wrong with people? And they did that and that's, that's what we've become. That's man's inhumanity to man. And that's what sin has done. And that's how horrific are the implications and how horrific is the impact of sin on humanity. And the cruelty. And every now and then we get glimpses, don't we, of, of how cruel. I mean, how cruel people can be to one another. It's just, it's just shocking. It's dehumanizing. And it's, it's ungodly. And it's ugly. And Jesus came to save us from from that also. Because you see, in, in the next world, it's going to be worse for unbelievers. Hell is going to be worse. Sometimes people think that, well, life here is terrible. I mean, just think about it. Look and read the numbers, the suffering. But it's going to be worse. And hell will stand in stark contrast to heaven. When it comes to so many things, not the least, when it comes to human relationships, because heaven, heaven's a place of harmony, and hell of disharmony. Heaven is a place of unity, and hell a place of fracture. Heaven is peace, the like of which we'll, we'll never know in this world. Hell is unrelenting war. Heaven is love, and hell is hatred. And if, if there is interaction between people and hell, it is interaction characterized by undiluted sin and selfishness and bitterness and anger and hatred. And from this, from this kind of world, Jesus has saved us. He has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And he has brought us. He's brought you. So he saved you from this conflict. And he's brought you. And he will bring you to a place where they shall neither hurt nor destroy in all God's holy mountain. That's your future, you see. That's where you will live. That'll be your existence they will neither hurt nor destroy in all God's holy mountain. In that place, you see, they beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. In that place, but, uh, the place you'll call home, 
the place that will be your abode forever. It's a place where nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn to make war anymore. Be out of a job there, Kevin. No military there. Don't need it. It's all over. We will have seen, you know, when we die and go to heaven, or when the Lord Jesus comes back and we're in the glory, we will have seen the last of of man's inhumanity to man. It's all over. And we will be living in what Edwards called a, a world of love. Imagine that. And Jesus saved us from conflict. He's brought us into that. And lastly, he saves us from purposelessness. <laughs> we, uh, we live in a world, and, and most people live, how does Ecclesiastes put it, under the sun. They, they live without any purpose because they, they live without any reference to God. And uh, as a result of living without any relationship or any perspective that is divine or any reference to God at all, they discover and sometimes they admit that it's all vanity, it's all empty, it's all purposeless. It's because they're rebels against God, you see. It's because they've, they've become estranged from their Creator and they're strangers to God and to His grace and they've gone astray and they don't want to come back. They've gone their own way. They don't want to return. And from the soil of that estrangement from God springs withering philosophies like existentialism and nihilism and the assertion that you know, if God's dead, as He is, well, we can do whatever we want. And when they live like that, they, they, they eventually admit that there's no purpose and there's no point and it's all vanity. And, and they find that Thoreau kind of expresses what life is really like because Thoreau said that uh, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. That's what it's like for people. We must not be Christians for so long that we forget that that's what life is like for people. Thoreau referenced that that quiet desperation. Later on, years later, Billy Joel picks that up in one of his songs. Everybody has a dream. Everybody lives days of quiet desperation. It's purposeless. It's empty. And certainly there's common grace, and God is gracious and kind. Not saving grace, but it's common, and and it makes life bearable. It makes it manageable. And there's, there's mercy drops, there's sprinkles of God's kindness everywhere so that people, you know, they can enjoy themselves. And you meet a lot of non Christians today, and, you know, they look happy, they look as if they're having a good time. They may have consumed so much alcohol that maybe their eyes are glazed over, but you catch them early in the day and they're pretty good. Well, that's just the kindness of God. It should lead them to repentance, but it doesn't. But you see, this life is difficult. There's no peace for the wicked. Things are hard for them. The way of the transgressor is hard. And you should have pity if you're a Christian You should feel sorry for them. Don't sit in judgment on them. 
I mean, your heart should break for these poor people. It's tough. And it's going to get worse. You go back and you read Revelation 18. It's going to get infinitely worse. When you read Revelation 18 and then you try and extrapolate and think about what it's going to be like. It's going to be like this. There's no progress. This is what life's going to be like. There's, there's no progress. There's no pleasure. There's no music. You know, music hath charms to soothe the savage breast. No music then. No safe haven. No rest. No peace. No drink of cold water. You remember. You remember the parable. And that poor man wants just a drop of water on his tongue. But it's it's not to be had. There's no building. There's no creating. And all the pleasure that that brings, there's no beauty in that, that next world for unbelievers. No wonder, no awe, no spectacular sights, no awe-inspiring vistas. You'll never sit down and listen to something that soothes and you'll never discuss something that inspires. You'll never speak of things that enlighten. There's no more social interaction, no family gatherings, no Christmas, no delight, no joy, just darkness and suffering. And from this, Jesus saves us. From this, he rescues us. She will bring forth a son. You call his name Jesus. He's come to save you. He's come to rescue you. He's come to make you his own. He's come to bring you to his glory. That's astounding. He has saved us from separation and punishment and wrath and conflict. And he's given us a reason to live forever. And by his grace, we glorify him and enjoy him world without end. Two quick implications. One, here's a Savior who deserves to be praised. <laughs> You've got to figure that out yourself. Deserves to be praised. He's, he's an effective Savior because he actually saved us. You, today, you're actually saved. He's done all the work. He's accomplished everything that's necessary. He said, finished. It's finished. So you're saved. He's a gracious Savior. Didn't have to do this. Didn't have to come. Didn't have to live. Didn't have to die for you. Didn't have to suffer for you. Didn't have to become propitiation for you. Uh, you hated Him, but He still came. You were blind to Him, but He still came. You didn't want to be saved, but He still came to save. It's all of grace, and it's all because of his mercy. He is a, an effective and a gracious Savior, and he's a generous Savior. He's a generous Savior. He didn't just save you from hell. He didn't just save you from judgment, but he made you his child. He made God the Father your Father. He's brought you into a family. You have brothers and sisters here. The Lord Jesus, your elder brother, 
You're the temple of God. He's given you and, sh- and showered you with innumerable bre- blessings. And He's the singular Savior. There's nobody else like Him. There's no other safe haven, but by grace you've been brought in. He deserves to be praised. That's the first thing. A Savior who deserves to be praised. And secondly, this is a Savior who demands to be proclaimed. It's not enough for us to know this. Not enough for us to be happy about it. Not enough for us to sing about it today. Now we have to tell people. Maybe you'll have opportunity to tell somebody today. You've got to grab that opportunity. You've got to seize the moment. If God's brought it along, you take that moment. It says that the shepherds, they return glorifying and praising God. But it also says uh, that they... They told, they spoke, they explained, they made known the sayings that had been told them about the child. But you see, it's not enough to to ponder the way Mary did. We have to proclaim the way the shepherds did. Jesus has saved us by his gospel. He's also given us grace so that we can proclaim that gospel and tell everyone else. So yeah, you know, enjoy. I hope you have a great day. And I don't know about you, but we try to to have more than one day. We have multiple celebrations, multiple meals, and just squeeze as much out of this as we can. That's fabulous. Do that. But, uh, But praise Him. Because he saved you from your sins. And proclaim him so that he might save others. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for your son. We praise you for him. And really there is joy in this world. Because the Lord has come. So we praise you then and ask for help to proclaim this singular, gracious, and generous Savior. We pray in His name. Amen.